What is the perfect story? We may not know for sure, but when you tell it, it's probably around a campfire, with a flashlight under your face, shuddering with terror. Welcome to a special Halloween bonus episode of The Midnight Myth, where we'll pit your favorite witches against each other in unlikely scenarios. It's a spooky boomerangorang. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, you name it, we talk about it podcast. Laurel and Derek are now married. We're married and we're back, just like Michael Myers in the new Halloween movie. We are back in your ear holes, giving you some sweet, sweet pop culture, history, and more storytelling galore. Uh, We're very, very excited to be back with a new episode. We just got back from our honeymoon a couple of days ago, so we are still kind of basking in the glow, but we didn't want to leave you hanging, and we wanted to get you one more episode before October was over, especially because it's spooky season and it's our favorite time of year around here. I know, right? It's been like two, maybe three weeks since we posted anything. I don't even know because I got married. It has been a minute, yeah. Um, So we're going to do a special Halloween slash building off of our last week's or last two weeks episode about witches. So if you've listened to us before, you know what the boomerangarang is. However, if you're new to it, the boomerangarang plays off of the idea when we started the episode that we wanted games to be a part of it. We wanted to be able to play word games with each other, games of wit and imagination. So how this works is we have two hats in front of us. In one hat, we have some of the greatest fictional pop culture mythological witches that we could think of. No holds barred there. We had a good discussion and we came up with six witches. In another hat, we have six scenarios. How this will work is we will each pitch, pick a witch and then pick a scenario. And then we'll have to argue which witch would do better in said scenario. Here's the kicker. You guys get to tell us who won the argument by hitting us up on Twitter. Now, the scenarios are a little special this time. These are not random scenarios. These are not just totally made up scenarios. These are other fictional worlds, universes, television shows, movies. So for example, we could pick which X and which would be better in television show Y. So this is a little bit of a new Halloween fun twist on it. The idea here is to have fun, maybe be silly, make Laurel and I be creative and think on our feet, and also bask in the glory of Derek's inevitable win of the boomerangarang. So this is a little shorter than the usual boomerangarang. You know, one of the reasons is Laurel and I are exhausted. We've been traveling. We're back to work. But we wanted to give something for you, dear listeners. So 
If a listener would like to chime in and tweet at us to tell us what we already know that Derek won the boomerangarang, how would they be able to do that? Well, if they wanted to um, tell Derek that he won the boomerangarang, what I would advise they do is go out to a field um, in the middle of nowhere and dig a hole and just scream, Derek is awesome, and then bury it, uh, bury the scream. Uh, so no one will ever hear it unless they go excavating ruins there in the um, very distant future. If you wanted to come to my defense uh, and say Laurel is the all-time winner of the Boomerangarang, they might hit us up on Twitter, at The Midnight Myth, uh, where there will be some Twitter polls in the next couple of days where you can actually vote on who you thought won each round of the Boomerangarang. If you want to get in touch with us, you can always add us on Twitter or you can hit us up on Facebook or on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Make sure you also head to our website where there's some blog content and additional episodes, www.midnightmyth.com. And if you haven't yet, make sure you hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, if you want to help us reach a bigger audience. I'm, for the record, totally okay for all the Derek fans out there to dig and scream my name into the ground <laughs> and to then bury it for future generations to hear it. I think if any fan does that, please record yourself doing it and hit that uh, video and, up to uh, me on Twitter. Tweet it at the Midnight Myth. So let us now grab our first witches. Now, these are witches from all over the gambit. So Laurel looks happy. Who'd you pick? I pulled Sabrina Spellman. Ah, from Sabrina the Teenage Witch. See. I have Ursula the Sea Witch. Oh, wow. From Little Mermaid. Head to head, we have a good witch and a bad witch. I just want to preface this by saying specifically we are going to um, reference Sabrina, I think from the new Netflix series, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, which if you haven't watched yet, definitely, definitely check it out. I'll keep this spoiler free for now. Um, but I think it's a really solid, really fun uh, and really spooky way to spend your time this October. So let's pull a scenario. Yeah, maybe there will be a Sabrina the Teenage Witch redone on Netflix um, episode. Without further ado, let us figure out what scenario we will be arguing in. And these will be which character would fare better in the world, in the universe of How I Met Your Mother. <laughs> ah. Would you like to take oh, opening arguments or wow. would you like closing arguments? I'm going to take opening arguments. Go for it. Great. So we're imagining that um, some TV movie literary witches are going to inhabit the worlds uh, of some of our favorite TVs and movies. So let's take a moment and think about how I met your mother. If you're not familiar with the show, you've probably seen an episode or two here and there. It's sort of the uh, ans the the. The heir to Friends in kind of the, the new era. After Friends was canceled, uh, this show came on with a bunch of buddies who live in New York City who have this extended adolescence who are, uh, you know, dealing with their careers and their friendships and their relationships and trying to have it all. Thank you for summarizing. Sabrina Spellman is, in every iteration of who she is, uh, a character who is caught between two worlds the mortal world and the witch world. She is a half witch whose mother was a mortal and whose father was a very high, highly regarded witch in his time. Now Sabrina has to kind of choose between having power and having freedom. 
being a mortal who is able to uh, you know, live her life to the fullest, knowing that one day she will die, but has friends and a boyfriend that she loves, or being a witch who has near unlimited power, will live forever, but has to sever her ties to her relationships. I can see a lot of similarities between Sabrina and 30-somethings living in New York, especially 30-something women, you know, living in the city in, uh, in this current time that we live in. It's hard to have it all, to have power and have freedom, to have a relationship and have a career. There is so much that is expected of women, um, especially in, in our time, and there's so much that we have to balance in order to just get through the day. It's almost like we have to live in two different worlds or we have to pick one. And Sabrina has never been content to just pick one. She's always wanted both. And I think if any witch is going to succeed in New York City, in the world of How I Met Your Mother, it's going to be Sabrina Spellman who wants to have it all. Good opening argument. <clears throat> Good opening argument. Pardon me, I have to clear my throat there. After faking yawning during my argument. So imagine this world where there's this character called the Little Mermaid, and she's swimming up towards the surface world, and passes a boat. And in that boat is a character named Ted Mosby. And she falls smittenly in love with Ted Mosby. Ew. But, as we all know, what is the crux of How I Met Your Mother? It's about a guy who is always falling in love with the wrong person until we get to meet who he meets as his mother, how he met his mother. His, his wife, right? Not, not oh, his yeah, mother. His, kid, his kid's mother. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the correction there. That's a very important distinction. And in comes this beautiful, gorgeous, charming, but mute woman into his life. And then Ted is sitting there with Barney. Barney's like, bro, she's hot. Who cares if she's mute? And then there's Lily and Marshall being like, dude, but do you really want someone you can't talk to? And then Lily smacks Marshall and goes, uh, he could learn sign language. <laughs> we all laugh. But as it turns out, there is an evil witch behind this whole thing. What is that evil witch? Ursula, the sea witch, who bargained Ariel for her soul to smite the surface world and to rip true love from Ted Mosby's hand. And at the very end, at the epic climax of this, when Ariel turns into a fish, Ted goes, well, all right, well, I'm pretty cool about just dumping girls anyway, so I'm just going to dump her. This got too heavy and real for me. And he turns away. But then Barty drives a seaboat right into gigantic Ursula's heart. Perfect scenario. You think that tonally is consistent with what How I Met Your Mother laid out and it's uh, like eight or so seasons? And then Ted wakes up and it was all just a weird dream because he fell asleep watching Little Mermaid. Um. Okay, I'm going to leave that right there. And Victory Derek. Yeah, Victory Laurel. Make sure you vote on uh, Twitter the next week. All right, so what is your, and who is your witch, rather? I have Samantha Stevens from Bewitched. Oh, the little nose twinkler. Yeah. She moves her nose and I does got magic. I good witch. Well, I have a good witch as well. I have Minerva McGonagall oh, from Harry no. Potter. Would you like to pick the uh, world? So Minerva McGonagall versus Samantha from Bewitched. 
I've got a feeling that if this is about raw power, Minerva may have an edge here. A clockwork orange. That's evil. Savage. <laughs> that is totally evil. Would you like me wow. to uh, take the... It, it is also, it is noted that it is a clockwork orange, the movie. The movie, not the book. Yeah, you go first. Dystopian England in the future. Teenagers are wearing strange costumes and raping and pillaging and hurting. Society is on the brinks of brink of collapse. It is in this horrific dystopian future where Anthony Burgess, the author of A Clockwork Orange, and then Stanley Kubrick, the director of the movie, set this world. And it's a bleak and it's a dark world. It's a world that could use a little magic. It's set in Britain, where all of the events of Harry Potter are set in Britain, so check mark there for my character. And it's not implausible if magic users have concealed themselves from the non-magic user that the world of A Clockwork Orange can happen at the same time as the world of Harry Potter. Nay, the world of Harry Potter may be the world of A Clockwork Orange. For we see little of the muggle world, and what we see is bleak and dark and full of bullies. It's possible that these two worlds are happening simultaneously. The dystopian future of A Clockwork Orange and the world of Harry Potter. But if it is possible, when characters like Alex from A Clockwork Orange are out there dreaming up ultraviolet schemes with his fellow droogies, drinking the Melicent, Villicent, and all these other synthetic drug-induced milk drinks. But there could be a witch who has had enough, who has said the wizards can no longer fully wash themselves clean of the muggle world as it falls deeper and deeper into dystopia. Someone who could navigate deftly in the muggle world because she can disguise herself as animals better than any other witch or wizard. And if any wizard's challenge, she can go toe-to-toe in any duel that she might decide her role as an educator is better served, making sure she is brainwashing the muggles away from violence. And she creates the entire program that brainwashes Alex from A Clockwork Orange. Wow. Wow. You're right. You're right. That's really interesting. Um Britain falls into total chaos and disarray at the hands of violent youth who need guidance, who need understanding, who need compassion and care. Alex especially needs love, needs to be cared for. And instead he has his eyes, his eyelids pried open and little drops placed in them while he is brainwashed away from violence in a way that is not sustainable, is torture, is inhumane. Regardless of all the horrible things he's done in his life, there's no reason for the kind of torture that Alex has put through. I posit that maybe for true transformation, for redemption for that character, maybe all he ever needed was a good woman. Maybe all he ever needed was to learn how to respect women. Maybe Samantha Stevens, a witch who could wrinkle her nose and maybe undo some of the things that he's done, undo some of the things that he's said, turn back time a little bit, or show him what the future could look like. Maybe just bake him a pie with a 
wink of her nose. Maybe just show him a better life. Maybe use her wholesome, truthful, compassionate magic to just give him a window into what the world would look like if he had chosen a different path. I think in the world of Clockwork Orange, we get a truer and closer look at how a human being can be redeemed if Samantha Stevens is the one who is guiding Alex to redemption. So in your scenario, the way that you envision it, she is his mother figure. She's a savior, yeah. Who stops him from doing that. Okay. In my scenario, McGonagall is the archetype of the entire plot of the movie with the conditioning to violence. So we went to we went very, very different, different routes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I respect where you go, where you went with that. And I, I think likewise, yeah, I think if, uh, if she were there wrinkling her, his nose and he was trying to pull some shenanigans as a kid probably could have disciplined him while loving him a little better. Um, so I, I like what you did there. And I think both of these witches would fare well in this world. Yeah. Yeah. But they would have very different outlooks. It would look very different at the end of the day. Absolutely. It'd be very, very different um, movies and books. Yeah. So we're going to pick our last witch here for the Boomerangerang. Who do you have? I have the Wicked Witch of the West. I know that you have. I have Morgan Le Fay. Wow. From King Arthur. From Arthurian legend. So that is Arthur's sister, if I recall, right? Yes, and in, depending in some on what versions, versions, yeah, she's a half sister, or she's, she's the mother of Mordred. Very mm-hmm. powerful, extremely witch. powerful. She's the architect of the uh, the Green Knight and many schemes against Arthur. So we have two very powerful and very evil witches, and arguing who would do better in which one? Sex in the City. Oh wow! Wow! All right, so right out of the gate, you're going to have a much stronger time arguing this one only because I've seen a total of negative two sex in the city episodes. Oh, okay. I, I, I figure kind of the world is, you know, the world, but I, I think Morgan Le Fay has a stronger chance of winning this one just based on the draw. All right. Well, you go first first because that'll let me get a little acclimated in the the world and then I'll come in with my Morgan Le Fay to bring it home. So sex in the city, it's interesting that we drew um, how I met your mother before because sex in the city also deals with a lot of the same issues of trying to have it all, trying to be a witch who can have it all or trying to be a woman who can have it all. Sorry for the slip of the tongue there. Um, You know, living in a big city like New York, it's not too different from the Emerald City of Oz. Uh, it's a place where dreams are made of. It's a place where you go to live your dreams and to do what you were born to do in a sea of millions and millions of other people trying to live their dreams out as well. Uh, Being a woman in New York, like I said with How I Met Your Mother, you're walking this line of how how to fulfill that dream, how to be what you were meant to be, and also how to fulfill you know, your, your more personal desires to fall in love or to be, you know, have a family or to have best friends. The Wicked Witch of the West is an interesting figure who has been given a little bit of a treatment in pop culture since, but I'm only going to really talk about her in, uh, in The Wizard of Oz where she uh, is, is incepted. 
She's an amazing character who is, I think, very misunderstood. She's got green skin, so she's different. She's unique. She's not Glinda. She's not the beautiful, uh, you know, wearing pink and making, you know, coming out of a pink bubble and doing wonderful, magical things to help other people. She's in it for herself. She's got nothing but a pair of ruby slippers that she uses to pound the pavement of the yellow brick road where she is trying to gain power. She is trying to win. She is trying to rule the city, the Emerald City. She's trying to be the best. And isn't that what Sex and the City is all about? Going to the big city and trying to be the best version of you, trying to have the high-powered career, trying to be loved by everyone, and trying to live your ambition and your dreams. Wait, it's not about getting laid in the city? It's about that too. That's part of it, is having love, having sex, being liberated as a woman, uh, and being able to kind of live this version of you that is not uh, a, a little wife at home, that is not uh, you know, bound to, uh, to traditional ideas of womanhood. There is a liberation that's part of that that I think the Wicked Witch of the West embodies. She broke out of expectations. She decided not to be Glinda and to command an army of flying monkeys that will help her conquer the world. And I think she would be perfect in Sex and the City. You don't think she would rub against the whole dress in good fashion and go to good parties and charm lots of, you don't think there's a friction there? I think she's a Miranda. I honestly, I do. Miranda of um, Sex in the City is generally seen as the more cynical character. Um, she's played by Cynthia Nixon, um, who is a little bit less interested in romance and a little more interested in her career, um, but who is very complex. She goes against the grain in terms of what women are expected to be and she makes herself known, and she she seeks power, and she goes for it. So I think the Wicked Witch of the West is in many ways a Miranda, a misunderstood Miranda, and we should all aspire to be Miranda. Okay. Um, so I'm going to do my best here. I really don't know what I'm going to be talking about, so I'm going to throw this out here that I'm pulling this out of my boomerangarang butt. Um, so Sex in the City is about friends were women in the city dealing with all of what that means. Um, the pressures, the stresses, the highs, the lows, the ecstasy, and the agonies. Exactly. And if I recall, the main character is a writer, right? Yeah, she has a column, a so sex she, column. She writes and she talks about sex in the city, and she's able to chronicle her story and the story of her friends through her gifted power of writing. Is this correct? Do I understand That's exactly this? right. Awesome. So I'm glad that I understand that. So let's think about Arthurian legend a little bit. One, it's legend. It's not history. It's suffered from a major problem. If these events happened, there wasn't anyone there to actually write these events down, so we don't really know what's real and what's not. This is problematic when we look at a character like Morgan Le Fay. We ask ourselves, what does this character represent in this legend? And it is down to one simple truth the corruptive influence of female power. That is what she represents. That's why she's there. She is the witch in the most wicked sense of the word, no pun intended on your character, that she is a woman seeking power and autonomy 
in a medieval dark age in which the only right to power is by having a penis and a sword and a castle. What does she suffer from as in, in this? Many ways, but in the way that's relevant to our discussion now, there's no one to chronicle her version. There's no one to tell her story. There's no one to say what it's like to be a powerful pagan witch in a fastly Christianizing medieval world, switching things from matriarchy to patriarchy, dealing with the power vacuum of the collapse of Rome and battle lords rising up who've got to tell her story and that she was an evil witch. Now, how does this correlate directly to the Sex and City? And why would she do well in this narrative? She would do well in this narrative because she could have a friend who could give her a voice and not a voice in a political sense, not a voice in the I'm being heard sense because Morgan Le Fay, as the characters we know it, had political power, had the ear of power, but a voice in that her actual self could be written down and be communicated that we could get her version of the events is what the sex in the city represents to Morgan Le Fay. And in this way, it's not a natural fit because Morgan Le Fay, medieval witch, pagan, Sex in the City, a bunch of Manhattanites who are clearly wealthy, discussing the vices and virtues and ups and downs of their lives. Um, on one hand, one could say that Sex in the City is petty in comparison to the life of Morgan Le Fay, but that is a misrepresentation because they are representing a same connected soul and spirit over the centuries. And what Sex in the City is doing is making Morgan Le Fay's story heard. And for that, there is no perfect marriage in all of the marriages of characters and worlds that we're trying to blend here. No better representation of what we wanted to do in this dialogue. No better thing to celebrate in the rise of anti-Semitism, misogyny, bigotry, and hatred that we're seeing out of the current ruling political party than to think of Morgan Le Fay in Sex in the City. I loved your argument. I was just sitting here nodding, and I never do that. I usually am just like taunting. Making faces, yeah. um, But I, I'm very, very impressed by that argument, and especially because you prefaced it by saying you know nothing about Sex in the City, and then you're like, well, I know this. Um, that was excellent. And I had I, to make sure it was correct. Yeah, but I think that was, that was super solid and says a lot about the witch narrative and how universal it is to the, the narrative of what it means to be a woman. Um, and I think that's really powerful. And Morgan Le Fay absolutely fits within that world because she is a character who kind of uses her uh, quote-unquote womanly wiles, which are seen to be sinister and evil in the, the narratives of the time, but reframed in Sex and the City, reframed from a contemporary lens, the men are dogs, and she's just getting her getting her just desserts. She's doing what is right for her. Um, and she is seen through a lens that is inherently patriarchal. And how amazing would it be to see her story retold from a matriarchal lens? Um, so I'm super impressed with that argument that you had. And I think it says a lot about these narratives uh, from a contemporary uh, perspective. Thank you. I pulled it out of my boomerangerang butt. Yeah, I'm going to let you have that one. Like, you guys can vote, but 
you can have that one. Um, cool. I think, I think we should do one more. We don't have any more in the hat. Okay. But would you be okay if I proposed two witches and you picked one and I picked one and then we pulled something out of the hat and don't know what it is? Because we have some extra scenarios. Um, yeah. Sure. All right. Let's so, do it. Let's boomerang and the boomerangerang. I'm thinking we need a Game of Thrones witch in here. So how about we throw the red woman Melisandre in? Okay. And uh, do you have another proposal or would you feel no. okay using Hermione Granger? Okay. Melisandre versus Hermione. Yeah, I don't have another proposal. So I get to pick which one? Yeah, you get to pick which one you so get. I'm going to pick Hermione. All right. And I have Melisandre. And the only reason I'm doing that is because I'm trying to throw it's you to off a little. piss me off. <laughs> Just thinking, because I knew you thought I would pick Melisandre. Yeah. So I'm playing a little no, three-dimensional chess here. Yeah. And uh, I think you picked the, the last. Yeah, go ahead and pick so one. So we have Melisandre versus Hermione in... The Handmaid's Tale. Oh, my God. I was really hoping you would pick The Handmaid's Tale out of there. Oh, wow. Okay, you go first. Damn. Um, okay. So, hopefully you've all seen The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. If you haven't, maybe pause. There could be some spoilers here. So, spoiler wall up for The Handmaid's Tale. Hermione Granger is one of the great modern contemporary feminist characters in magical um fantasy science fiction nerd culture Young if adult you will literature yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Nerd, nerd culture all of it yeah yeah she's one of the greats um both in how she is in the movies and in the books the republic of gilead is the representation of destroying everything hermione granger stands for yeah absolutely everything that she's about speaking truth to power sticking up for the weak, fighting for the disenfranchised, valuing intelligence and reason as your primary decision over emotion and superstition. Putting her into the world of The Handmaid's Tale would be difficult. We're talking about a dark story. The Handmaid's Tale is already dark, but we're talking about the Republic of Gilead breaking her wand, talking about them burning her books, maybe scarring her face or chopping off a finger, doing everything they can to break her, just like they do to June. I don't think she would be immune to this. There's one scenario in which I think Hermione Granger would fare well. No matter what they do, no matter what they take, they can't take her knowledge. And since they can't take her knowledge... There will still be spells that she can she can cast. This is the character who fought for the liberation of the enslaved house elves. And putting her in the world of Handmaid's Tale, I see someone to join with the character June in fighting and rebelling and overturning Gilead. I see her as the voice of the resistance. I see her working within Gilead, using her magic, to conceal and hide herself and eventually finding June and them working together to topple this horrific military, theocratic, autocratic regime of Gilead. It's a dark story. It's not a happy story. No. It's very dark and savage. And Hermione would come close to breaking as all people oppressed do, but I think she'd overcome it. I love it. I think that's really good. 
It made me sad thinking of mutilated Hermione Granger. It makes me I'm, really sad, too. I hate that I said that. But she's a, she's a character who is so strong, you know that she would come back you know, more powerful. And we may find that Gilead is the muggle wing of Voldemort's army. Yeah, very interesting crossover proposal there. Absolutely. So I'm here to argue for Melisandre fitting into the world of The Handmaid's Tale, and I want to start by asking you a couple of questions. Go for it. What color do The Handmaids wear? Red. What color does Melisandre wear? Red. What do The Handmaid's Tale, uh, what do The Handmaids do for their commanders? What is their sole purpose for the commander? Birth their children. What does Melisandre do for Stannis? Births a demon spawn baby to assassinate Renly. What would happen if Melisandre were in the house of the commander working silently and quietly against the world of Gilead? What if Melisandre became pregnant supposedly by the hand of the commander and instead of giving birth to a beautiful baby boy or baby girl, she gave birth to a demon meant to behead him. Wouldn't Melisandre be an ideal spy to place into the handmaid's uh, cradle? Wouldn't she be the person that you would want to overthrow Gilead violently and powerfully? And wouldn't she have the ambition to overthrow it and not only the power? If you placed Melisandre into this world wearing red, she might look pretty and demure, but she would never, ever, ever submit. And she would tear it down from the inside out. Not the direction I would have gone with Melisandre. No, not so much. Great argument. Not, not tearing down your argument at all. But I see Melisandre as seeing the post-Gilead world happening, finding these religious men and going, do you know all women should wear red? Because red is the color of the Lord. Do yeah. you know that women shouldn't? I see her as like whispering in the ear That is very of the much commander. another version of it. And I wanted to go a slightly more optimistic route because Fair enough. I want to see violence wrought upon Commander Waterford. But um, great, no great but, argument. But I don't you're disagree. Totally right. That's it's that's not a where, very likely scenario. That is not where I would have gone. I was just like, oh man, he pulled the Handmaid's Tale, and she wears red, and she had a baby, and it was a shadow demon. So you um, had you had to go for it. So I, I had totally to go get for that. it. That was fun. Thank you for permitting me that extra boomerang to the boomerangerang. Absolutely, guys. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you think at the Midnight Myth on Twitter. Have a happy, safe. Halloween, eat candy, wear costumes, and until next time, be kind. Spooky.